Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric, and I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. Thank you so much for your generous support. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena a little more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear It Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Yes, what he said. Now, let's get to the show. Let's hear it. And welcome in, everybody. We're back with Let's Hear It. Um, it's just one hit after another on Let's Hear It. We've got another hit today. There is <laughs> we a do lot say so ourselves. Aren't we talk about. fabulous? So I want to say one thing right here from the get-go <laughs> before we even talk about, Eric, who this person is. Yeah. Go immediately to minute 35 of this interview. Go immediately. <laughs> listen like, stop to- Stop listening to anything. Those four minutes <laughs> and then come back. <laughs> Because if you do nothing else, listen to the four Just minutes that starts at minute 35 of the interview. Read the um, epilogue of the mystery. <laughs> Man, so that is that is a Babe Ruth knock it out of the park moment. Absolutely. So who, who are we about to listen to today, Eric? Uh, Give us the background. We are listening to Drew Altman, who is the president and chief executive officer of the Henry J. Kaiser Family Foundation, now familiar, familiarly known as KFF. Mm-hmm. Drew is in many ways, uh, what would I call it? He's another one of these amazing pioneers in foundation communications or nonprofit communications, or I don't know what. He has created a new thing. We talk about Mm -hmm. it fairly extensively in this interview, but he went to the Kaiser Foundation over, what did he say, 20, almost 30 years ago. Almost 30 years, yep. And and created a new thing that philanthropy hadn't been doing. I, I won't I won't ruin the story because you should actually listen to the first 35 minutes before you <laughs> listen to the last five because <laughs> that is where the payoff happens. But the setup yeah. is so interesting and worth so listening excellent. to. But Drew is, a, again, a, he's, a, he's a, a, a hero for communications professionals. He's a hero for journalism, I think. Mm-hmm. And he has built something over there that is eminently emulatable. So this is another yes. thing that if you are a philanthropist, if you're working in this field, particularly if you are the check writer, listen to what he's done and think mm-hmm. about doing it yourself. If you are running communications at a foundation and are thinking about how do I have an influence on the issues that I'm working on, listen to what he's done. You don't need to have a whatever it is, a billion dollar uh, public charity with an you know endowed public charity to, in order to pull that off, uh, because the lessons that he offers are so valuable. That's why. Yeah. I, oh, what a great, what a cool conversation from a guy who has seen it and done it, and that's so, really cool. So generous of him to spend the time, and yeah, absolutely. As you guys are going through this, I'm thinking to myself, man, all of us. This is the these are the people who created the way. This is the these are the people who created this entire possibility of doing cause related communications. I mean, he just, he, 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 so much of this he made up. So this is Drew Altman, president and chief executive officer at the Henry J. Kaiser family foundation. Um, on let's hear it. Eric, will listen to your interview and we'll come back. We'll talk. Great. 
Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest this week is Drew Altman, who's the president and chief executive officer of the Henry J. Kaiser Family Foundation. I can't tell you how excited I am about this conversation, Drew, but I have to start with a question, which uh, is that the Henry J. Kaiser Family Foundation is uh, neither a family foundation um, nor a foundation, (laughs) nor is it related to... (laughs) <laughs> to Kaiser anymore. Do I have that right? Yeah, but exactly right. Um, it's great to be here. And, you know, these days we very imperfectly solve that problem by mostly being known as KFF. <laughs> That's good. Because it's true. It's hard to, speaking of communications, start a conversation by explaining what you're not. You never want to do that. So these it's days like we broke the rule already. Yeah, that's or, right. Or I am behind um, the good communications. Isn't that great for a successful communications organization? So these days we are called um, KFF, and actually, the simplest way to think of us is as an endowed national nonprofit organization. When we were a foundation, we were an operating foundation, not a grant making one. And for a long time now, we've been what's technically called a public charity, but it's just a nonprofit with an endowment. Um, and I which, apologize, all no, which all nonprofits wish they had. I yeah, suspect. exactly. Um, so I apologize for our complexity. <laughs> but the fact is that you can call yourself KFF and people actually know what that means now because of what you've built. And we're we, going to talk about that. We have, it, we have established a brand and I do occasionally get um, angry letters from people who are enrolled in the big HMO, Kaiser Permanente, who are annoyed that uh, we spend their premium dollars on whatever analysis or poll or uh, Kaiser Health News article uh, they think we spent their premium dollars on. (laughs) But other than that, we have no connection. Well, I used to work at the Hewlett Foundation, so (laughs) I know what brand confusion is like. Exactly. Yeah. I I told this story before. My my father-in-law once thought I worked for HP, and he called over there. And they said that he didn't, that I didn't work there. And he called my wife and said, I think your husband's been fired. (laughs) It's actually a serious consideration for us because from time to time over the years, and I'm sure this will continue, we think about changing our name. Organizations typically change their names when they have some problem. We don't have one. Um, And it's a real dilemma for us because, as you just suggested, our name can be confusing. On the other hand, we have a good brand in the little niche world in which we try and operate of health policy and politics and journalism. So we probably will continue to struggle with that for some time. Well, what you do is not confusing. I, I want to go back just a little bit and get a little bit of your, your background. The time machine. The, okay. <laughs> the time machine. You, um, I'm just going to run down some of this stuff. You, so you... you Got your PhD in political science at MIT. I, I, I won't go all the way back to your bachelor's, but you, your you, your background in education was political science, and then you did work at the Harvard School of Public Health and taught policy at MIT. Then you became the commissioner of the Department of Human Services in New Jersey under Tom Kane, a Republican, right? Yeah. Before that, and, I worked in the Carter ah, administration, just right. in case somebody wants to date me. <laughs> so <laughs> you're an ominous grease uh, in yeah. in the business, mm. but um, and then you were at, you were at Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and yeah. then Pew, and then you came to Kaiser with a few other little things along the way, but that that that's it. That's a pretty good. And so you've been at Kaiser for tw- is this 28 years? Do I have that right? No, you Is don't. It more? Is it's it? almost 30. <laughs> um, yes, I'm a failed academic who has spent his career in 
federal state government and big nonprofits, and then founded this organization in the in the early '90s. Um, and I've never been able to explain anything I've done to my grandmother. But at one point, we did operate a restaurant at our previous facility, and she could understand that, <laughs> that I owned a restaurant. You're a restaurant tour. Yeah, right. <laughs> 28 years is a long time to stay at one place. Or uh, wait, wait, more, almost 30, rather. I, I never I thought that would happen. <laughs> I you know, almost left for other things a couple of times. I never thought that uh, doing this would become such a big um, part of my life's work. Uh, but I've loved it. I believe deeply in it. And we continually reinvent and change this organization. Um, and that's been part of the magic for me and for us. And it really is the reason I've stayed. And you don't now you don't operate a restaurant anymore because you've moved up to San Francisco, but you're a media mogul. Well, I don't know about a mogul. <laughs> um, but... I established the organization because I had a general idea that as healthcare was becoming a bigger issue, there might be a need for an independent nonprofit organization, which through information could be a bit of a counterweight to the money in politics, which was coming to dominate health and a voice for people. Be independent, be non-aligned. And we do that uh, three ways, through all kinds of policy analysis and research, lots of polling and survey research, for which we're well known. And journalism, and we now actually operate the largest health newsroom in the country. We call it Kaiser Health News, distributing our content every day through everyone from the New York Times and the Washington Post to small chains across the country. Uh, and so uh, the combination of those things, we hope, gives us overall the institutional presence and the reach to play that role that we set out to play many, many years ago. And back, so many, many years ago, back in the early 90s, you were a regular old foundation, right? A private endowed foundation. Was that, was that what you were at the time, or were uh, you were already an operating foundation? Uh, there, was, um, there was a Kaiser Family Foundation, and for complicated um, reasons, a decision was made uh, to dissolve the organization and start over again. And... Um, Someone, a wonderful man with an even more glorious name. His name was Hale Champion. Hale Champion, really? Yeah, yeah that was his name. And he, is his real name? Yeah, and he was mm. actually quite a figure in public administration. Um, and a group on the board who were very well known nationally, uh, the late extraordinary Congresswoman Barbara Jordan, who became a close personal friend, uh, another well-known uh, national leader, Joe Califano, and some others. Uh, Hale found me. Um, and I had just finished up as Commissioner of Human Services in New Jersey, and he was aware of some things I had done that got national attention and was spending a little bit of time helping the Pew Charitable Trust, which then did not resemble in any way the current Pew Charitable Trust, uh, kind of professionalize. And he said, you know, do you have any interest in coming out to California and taking over this organization? And I said... I guess I'll just be frank about this. Well, I spent almost six years uh, as a senior officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and those were good years, uh, and sometime at the Pew Charitable Trust. And I'm really not interested in spending any more time in grant-making foundations. So no. Um, he said, but we're starting a new organization. I said, I have this 
vague idea for a different kind of foundation, which through information, and then I described what I went through a minute ago, uh, could be uh, play a different role in healthcare. And he loved the idea, and we just kept talking, and I talked to the others, and eventually agreed to come out to California to start a new organization, literally had to release all of the staff. And it wasn't a classic startup in the sense that I had um, a telephone and some stationery, so I would call it a restart. Uh, and we started to build the organization. In the early days, um, this would not make sense now, but in those days, the idea of, a, and we were an operating foundation. We, we quickly became an operating foundation, not a grant-making foundation. There are two kinds of foundations, mm -hmm. and it gets uh, Byzantine in the, under the IRS rules, but it's an organization that runs its own programs. Uh, the idea of a thing called a foundation of being directly involved in policy and legislation, even in the objective, independent way we intended to be, was considered radical in the extreme. It was front page news when we announced what we wanted to do. And I remember three weeks into the job, I received um, a handwritten note from a friend who then was the dean of a health foundation presidents in her beautiful handwriting. And all it said literally was, Dear Drew, you will drag us down and destroy us all. <laughs> and I remember thinking, well, have a great day. And um, in those days, too, uh, thinking ahead to our discussion of communications, I knew that we needed a certain profile um, and we needed to be effective communicators because the same fact or study or poll in the Washington Post had a very different impact uh, than um, just something that you release and goes nowhere. I mean, one, the senator has to call his staff in and say, what the hell is this? And the other one can be ignored. But in those days, foundations were still very much living in the world of through your good work shall you be known. And the profile that we had was considered unseemly. Uh, people even suspected that um, I was running for office. Um, which I thought was hilarious because when I was in government, there was once a New York Times profile of me in which I was described as a nice guy trapped in a deadly serious space. <laughs> so I never had any intention of running for anything. I was always a technocrat and kind of an appointed office guy. So you, you had... Obviously, you had a background in, in philanthropy, and you understood how foundations worked, and you understood that there was something missing in the field of health. Were there, what were the things that inspired you to take this? What was a radical decision for a foundation to completely upend it, it the way? It was a vision and a belief uh, that um, what was broken in health uh, was not just the problems that we worked on every day, the uninsured or health care costs or this about Medicare or that about Medicaid, which, of course... Uh, are serious problems that we worked on. It was the democracy of health, just like the broken political system. It was healthcare's part of the broken political system. And the dominance of politics and ideology as the country became more polarized, um, and the uh, disinformation about almost every issue. And uh, I developed the view that an independent, aggressive, smart, a uh, nonprofit organization could play a role in that with no delusions of grandeur. Uh, 
So we were not setting out to achieve any particular policy objective or outcome, but instead to play a role that I felt was deeply needed in the system as a little bit of a, of a counterweight um, to all of that, uh, if we could establish the credibility that we needed to do it. And it took many years to establish that credibility. And now I think it's fair to say that we more than have it. Um, and we play um, substantial, almost quasi-official or quasi-public role uh, on the national health policy stage. Uh, but, you know, that was not the case on day one or year one or year two or three or four. It took a long time to develop the in-house capacity necessary, the expertise necessary in the areas in which we wanted to operate to play the role we wanted to play nationally. Was it your sense you were going to build a newsroom right right at the beginning, or did that take time? Can you talk through it was how, my how you built that up? sense in the beginning that we uh, wanted to have a big commitment um, to journalism, and we did right from the beginning. So the first two programs, operating programs I developed, one was uh, a big program on Medicaid, which I, at the time I felt the country wasn't paying enough, the field wasn't paying enough attention to. And the other was a big program on journalism. And slowly we began to develop uh, big journalism initiatives, um, eventually one called KaiserNetwork.org. Uh, but we didn't do a lot of original journalism. Uh, and I felt early on that the field, uh, the journalism world itself, wasn't ready for and would not accept a nonprofit organization directly operating, um, you know, side by side the New York Times or the Washington Post or ABC News. By the time we got to 2008, 2009, I thought we could take a shot at that. It was by no means guaranteed that it would work or it would be successful. And so in June of 2009, uh, we launched Kaiser Health News with a lot of decisions about how it would operate that I won't necessarily go through, but it's exceeded our wildest expectations. It's really taken off and it's worked. Uh, and I think that speaks to some some good judgments we lucked into about how we wanted it to work, some great leadership that we have at uh, KHN, uh, and just changes in the media world and the information world that uh, allowed it to work in 2009 and today, where it may not have worked in, say, 2005 or 2002. And is that just because of the parlous state of journalism right now, that there's this gap that needs to be filled? Yes. Uh, yeah. 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 Essentially, yes. But we really had to work very hard to make it successful. And we had to make a bunch of fundamental decisions. One of them was that um, it would be an operating program in the organization, just like all our others. But unlike any other, it had to be editorially independent um, for it to be a real journalistic enterprise uh, for it to be a fully credentialed news service, and it is. And uh, that was a big decision for us because it was the first time that we would be producing information products, in this case journalism, uh, that would bear our name, that we didn't have immediate and direct control over. So in the beginning, I functioned as the publisher, and now as the founding publisher, we have another very gifted person, David Rousseau, functions as a day-to-day -day publisher. And so, of course, we, you know... 
we're in control of the budget and hiring, uh, and we review um, the work periodically to make sure we're on mission. But I don't see, uh, I don't have any control over story selection or story content. And what will happen is our editor-in-chief, Libby Rosenthal, came from the New York Times. You know, Libby will call me or send me an email and say, uh, you might want to check the Washington Post tomorrow. <laughs> and um, that's how it should work. And that, how, and that is how it does work. And, and parts of this building do advocacy, right? You're working on advancing certain approaches to health. No, and, we don't actually, we don't, the way we think about it, we don't actually do any advocacy ever. We've never taken a position on anything. We've never signed on board any lists or anything. This frustrates a lot of people. But um, our journalism, our policy analysis, and our polling are all the same. Uh, we will always aggressively report the results of our work, whether uh, it's the policy analysis or it's the journalism, but we will never take a position. We are never trying to achieve any particular policy outcome um, because often we focus on low-income populations or the disabled or people with HIV. We are addressing unmet need in the country. But, um, uh, for example, uh, you might find advocates of Medicare for All or public option or uh, whatever on the right who are continually annoyed with us because we never take a position. And one day we might put out a poll that says something they like and another day something they don't like. And um, uh, current leadership, I won't comment on, but it would often happen that I would hear personally from a Republican president or a Democratic president because mm -hmm. they just don't like the results of whatever it is we were saying. It is only because of that that we have the credibility we have. That makes sense. This place, KFF, really feels to me like a place that punches way above its weight. Now, this isn't to say it's not a large institution, but I mean, the annual budget is in the 40 to $50 million yep. range, yep. which I did some math but I'm not good at math, so I might, I might be way off. But the Gates Foundation makes $5 billion in grants every year. So by January 3rd, it spends your entire <laughs> your entire budget. And, I, you know, it, it's apples and oranges co comparisons and things like that. But nevertheless, the uh, impact of this institution feels to me like a lot more than yeah, the I mean, of Gates Yeah, I, I don't think it's – I think it's just, you know, everyone would say we're – we're the leading health policy organization in the country, but um, I don't like the punch above the weight thing because it's foundation thinking. <laughs> if we were okay. a foundation, we'd be nothing. Uh, I right. could spend and did uh, our entire budget as a grant maker in a week. Uh, I did it at Robert Wood Johnson, right. and that work was very rewarding. In the nonprofit world, where we're directly operating our own programs, we're more than big enough. And actually, the funny thing is, as an endowed nonprofit, as a foundation, going from a, even an operating foundation to an endowed nonprofit, we go from small to huge. Uh, except for one other organization, I believe we have by far the largest endowment of any public charity or endowed nonprofit organization. And our operating budget is plenty big for us to do what we need to do. Um, we operate uh, about 70% supported by our endowment, about 30% supported by external funds. 
which come exclusively, not exclusively, but almost exclusively from grant-making foundations, to whom we're very grateful. We use those funds for uh, the incremental costs of new activities or projects um, we couldn't otherwise undertake. We're not a classic soft money organization, uh, so you never find portions of the leadership salary here on, on grants. Uh, unlike most nonprofits, we don't accept corporate funding. We don't accept federal government funding. We can't, because if you think about the work that we do, it would at least look like a conflict of interest, given that we're always studying what the drug companies are doing, what the insurance companies are doing, what the government is doing. So we don't do that. Um, so um, uh, that punch above the weight thing would certainly be more than true if we were a foundation, but I don't think it's relevant yeah. uh, as a nonprofit. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a, a short break and be right back with Drew Altman of KFF and continue this really great conversation. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is made possible through the generous support of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. And we're back with Drew Altman, President and CEO of Kaiser Family Foundation, or KFF. Okay, so you've corrected me a bunch of times, which is great, because I'm always... <laughs> this is how I learn. <laughs> Why not just go to the source? But this organization has created... You, you've created a media institution. If you're a funder, let's just say you're a funder mm -hmm. and you care about an issue. Mm -hmm. This place cared about mm -hmm. health, but there's, also, there's no shortage of issues that mm -hmm. need to be addressed. And probably there's no shortage of issues for which journalism is failing mm -hmm. or it's not interesting mm -hmm. is it's, it's not being covered for for whatever reason why not if if i were let's say i'm a a billionaire who lives mm -hmm. within 5 miles of where we sit here in san francisco and i care about an issue why should i not attempt to emulate this model you might uh, it's a great model the one difference about our model is that the um the nonprofit model is that the core operational support for what we do is just built into our line operating budget and the staff are our employees. So we don't face the uncertainty that the small number of other successful national nonprofit news operations have uh, where they may get some additional anchor funding and then they have to worry, well, can they keep it up? And then they have to diversify their funding. So our core funding is just part of our ongoing operating budget and part of the permanent long-term mission of our organization. So that's an advantage or we have or a difference uh, between us and the other major nonprofit news organizations. But certainly, if some multi-billionaire was interested in climate change or uh, criminal justice reform, and just wanted to endow or bankroll uh, an independent nonprofit organization as long as they were willing to make a commitment to um, following the principles that one needs to follow to establish a real you know, news operation and not uh, try and interfere, they could do that. 
And, um, you know, from there, there are a million decisions that need to be made to do it right. But they could do that. The uh, people have been buying up news organizations as well. Jeff mm -hmm. Bezos mm -hmm. bought the Washington Post. The Time, Time magazine was sold recently. Mm -hmm. I can't remember who bought it, but it wasn't that expensive. And Newsweek was sold famously for a dollar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but so it, it, it feels like there are opportunities there. But can you talk a little bit more about journalism in general? Because, again, this is one of those things where... It, it almost feels like objective coverage of issues is uh, the more the exception than it used to be. Yeah. And, and can you talk about why that matters and how that actually makes a difference to build trust? You know, I think with the trouble we're having with democracy right now, you know, we really only have uh, the media, imperfect though it may be. We have the courts. We have what we loosely call civil society um, as the counterweights to a polarized and broken uh, political system, to the problems we may have uh, uh, with our top political leadership right now. And so that's what we have right now. It's not just the three branches of government that keep our democracy healthy and functioning and alive. The biggest deficits in journalism right now, though, are not on the national stage where the national news organizations are still able to do quite a wonderful job, by and large. They're in two other places. They're in local journalism, where we're seeing uh, local newspapers and regional newspapers disappear. For example, hundreds and hundreds of counties throughout the South uh, without a local newspaper. And the state houses around the country, where, you know, when I was in state government, uh, state cabinet officer, I literally had 30 or 40 journalists following me everywhere I went. That's just gone. And so that kind of coverage in states for voters and for the citizens of what state government is and isn't doing, which is just critical to people's lives, has disappeared. So the biggest deficits, I believe, are uh, at the state and at the, at the local level, where government really most immediately touches people's lives. Um, we've uh, tried to do our bid on that. We've opened a California Bureau, a Midwest Bureau, a Mountain States Bureau. Uh, uh, next, uh, we'll be focusing on the South. And well, I haven't talked about the details of Kaiser Health News today. Our major thrust, and, and actually this is the thrust, this is the, the hallmark of our entire organization, is to focus on uh, how policy changes and changes in the healthcare system affect people. We don't pay much attention to hospitals. We don't pay much attention to doctors. They kind of take care of themselves. And we're focusing at KHN right now a lot on outside the beltway uh, and what's happening to people uh, in the healthcare system. And um, next on our priority list is to try and figure out how to expand our coverage substantially in the South, where there's not only um, great unmet health care need, but where there are the biggest holes in, um, in journalism and in coverage right now. What, to what extent do these things link to each other? Well, I think they are connected. I, I, you know, I think uh, when you're not holding government accountable, it's, either, it's easier for government to not do its job. And so it is a good thing to shine a light on the problems. I know from having been in government that media coverage spurs action. 
it just does. It's a kind of an umpire. And legislatures pay attention and public officials pay attention. So it's a necessary part of how our system works. It's really a part of the system. Some people would say that the Affordable Care Act is is the one piece of substantive legislation that we have seen out of Congress in the last long period of time, kind of fundamental change in 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 a in a large system. Is A, do you think that's a an accurate statement? And B, kind of what effect did either your work or just an improvement on coverage or understanding about health add to that? Um, I think also there's been some uh, significant, uh, though not as large, legislation on opioids, which was one of the rare issues uh, where the Congress could move forward on a bipartisan basis. But yeah, the ACA is the most significant piece of legislation in a long, long time. I think we were able to pay, play a considerable role just getting out the facts and doing analysis and doing um, polling. Uh, and at critical moments, including when everything was hanging in the balance in the middle of the repeal and replace debate, for example, uh, and and at other times. Uh, And by sticking with it, we've been doing a monthly tracking poll on the ACA since 2010, uh, and that's where everyone goes. And in our polling, we we don't just focus on, you know, are people happy, or upset, or what are their views, but also their experiences and what's actually happening to them. Uh, at the same time, I also think, in many ways, the ACA has been overblown, and there have been mistakes made in reporting on it. So, for example, today in the Washington Post, it's reported that 3% of the American people are covered by the ACA marketplaces. But if you follow the coverage, you would have thought that the ACA marketplaces represented, one, all of Obamacare, and two, the entire healthcare system. And that's exactly how the American people responded to it. When they saw those reports some years ago about rising premiums in the ACA marketplaces, everyone thought it was about them, and their premiums were rising, and they were scared. And they reacted politically in exactly that way. That wasn't an accident. Some of that was manufactured. Some of it was bad headline writing. The headline would be premiums soar. And so all of America thought their premiums were soaring when there are 10 million people in the ACA marketplaces and 160 million people get their employment through their employers at work and are not in the ACA marketplaces. And then there are the people in Medicare and Medicaid. And so I also think we made some real mistakes in how we covered the ACA and continued to suffer the aftershocks of those mistakes. You talk a lot, of, obviously, with your background in politics and your understanding of health. You talk about the, the pol- how, how health and politics um, mm-hmm. relate to each other. Mm-hmm. You, you recently wrote about how the Democratic candidates for president are talking about health care in a way that isn't necessarily effective. Why and how does health, something as fundamental as health care get politicized like this? And why do people do such a poor job in either articulating it or analyzing it? It's just um, our sad fate that our issue became the poster child of partisan division in the country. Uh, that happened many years ago, but it really became that um, 
with the ACA and when President Obama became president and became a lightning rod himself for part, he would say this, for partisan division uh, in the country. And so almost everything about the ACA divides uh, perfectly along partisan lines. It's very sad. Um, it's very hard to have any substantial reform of the healthcare system without bipartisan support. And we've been stuck there for a very, very long time. So when you look, for example, at opinion on the ACA, about 80, 85, even 90 percent of Democrats are strongly for it. Uh, the corresponding Republican number is about 10 or 12 percent. And independents are in the middle, and we've been stuck there with no significant change since 2010. I have become convinced, though my polling group won't let me do it because they have standards, that I could, we could ask on a poll, will the ACA take us to Mars or will it solve the climate change problem? And we would get exactly the same distribution in opinion. Uh, and that is, uh, if not our worst challenge in healthcare, right up there among them. And of course, it just reflects the partisan division, if not in the country, uh, certainly in the Congress and to some extent in the country. Do you see that better coverage of these issues actually weakens or, or cracks at that? We see on many issues that uh, when people are more informed, it does change. Not on every issue, uh, but on many issues. And we also see that when things become more tangible for people, they're less ideological. So when you ask people about the ACA, it's just partisan. But when you ask people, for example, about pre-existing conditions, it's not partisan at all. Everyone wants to be protected, Republicans and Democrats about equally. Oh, someone from Cato said that that was incorrect and that he, he bet you 100 bucks. Did you, did you read that? I didn't, <laughs> did read that? I didn't see it. I, I took a note. Was, I think I know who it would be, but I... Michael Cannon. Yeah, it's Michael. Bet you 100 bucks that Obamacare's pre-existing conditions are unpopular. So I, I assume that bet is still outstanding. No one has collected. Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say to a, to a new philanthropist? With Let's just say they've got their billion dollars. Well, one thing I would say that we haven't talked about is you really need to make a huge investment in communications to be effective. No matter what your strategy or style, grant making, not so much grant making, operating, if you are a traditional grant maker, it is a fundamental way for you to leverage your issues and the work of your grantees. Otherwise, everything you do is going to be a one-off set of grants. And unless you're um, leveraging the issues that your grantees are working on, convening your grantees, you will never have a broader strategy if you are still stuck in a world, as some traditional foundations are, in which you view your communications activities as some form of overhead that detracts from the money out the door or your philanthropy. You really don't have uh, an effective communications strategy. In this organization, um, we're not a grant-making organization. Uh, we've always had a very, very different philosophy. Our philosophy is um, that communications is everyone's job. Um, and so we've always uh, sought and cultivated uh, experts. Many of the people here are national experts or sometimes the national expert in some particular area who are communicators too. And of course, we also are the media ourselves. Uh, and that strategy has worked 
wonderfully for us. So we don't view communications as something that you hand off to a communications shop or PR office at the end of the hall. We have a communications uh, operation, but that is not their job. It is the job of the professional staff here to uh, communicate every um, bit as much as it is their job to do the analysis and the research or the polling or the journalism. That culture where communications is part of the work of the organization uh, is imbued throughout the whole organization. We also function as an organization uh, as, in effect, a service for other communicators in the media. So on any given day, I would imagine we handle somewhere between 50 and 60 calls from, it could be policymakers or the national media, and those calls are, I'm working on a story, uh, what are these facts, I don't, should I look at this study or that study? And we pride ourselves and have made a huge organizational commitment to responding to those calls immediately. Sometimes uh, it requires we stay up all night and do a special analysis. If it's a major news organization, they're handled at my level and at every level. Um, and we never promote our own work in those discussions, ever. That's our principle. I think we've earned some credibility by doing that. And so we have, um, you could almost think of our entire organization as a communications organization that does analysis, research, and polling. We have more the pace and the heart of, we're kind of like an ABC News that actually does analysis and polling. And that has worked extremely well for us. But again, even if you're a grant-making organization, uh, too often I hear, well, we just can't invest in that. Or funders, well, we can't invest in that because it detracts from the purposes of the grant. And my view is you won't achieve the purposes of your grant-making unless you invest very heavily in communication strategies. Well, I swear I didn't put you up to that, but I, I don't think I've heard a better set of messages about why communications matters for philanthropy or any social change enterprise that anyone could think of. I mean, I happen to believe, agree with you, not just because it's my business, but because I think it happens to be true. And we, we need more folks like you out there banging the communications drum because it is really true of an organization that doesn't communicate and doesn't understand communications is going to fail. I'll bang the drum. Just invite me. <laughs> well, it's been such a pleasure to have you, Drew. I Thank really, so really appreciate your time. What you're doing here is just amazing, and we'll keep following you. Thanks very much. Thanks again. Yeah. Oh, man, and we're back. So a lot to get you're through You're going to get there. all crazy, aren't you, Kirk? I'm going to go insane. Okay, but so <laughs> so first of all, by the first way, of all. By the way, I have to say that our intrepid uh coordinator maggie the intrepid maggie brown says that i'm yeah that i mean to you <laughs> yeah thank you thank you you are thank you maggie thank you. <laughs> so you're gonna get all crazy but i say it in a loving and caring way kirk well this is the answer <laughs> drew altman is the answer <laughs> so but so here is here is, i hope you weren't driving when you listen to this because no, no, but it's, it's so like, good. screaming crazy man doing in the tesla <laughs> so good. So, um, so, but actually, this is an interesting question that occurred to me as you were talking to Drew. Do you think Drew believes that the truth will set you free? Yes. Isn't that interesting? He does. 
Do you believe the truth will set you free? I'm starting to. Isn't that interesting? I'm starting to. I, I think that, well, here's, how do you put it? The freedom that you get by not telling the truth isn't freedom. You can write that one down. (laughs) (laughs) If you win with the truth, you have a chance to stay winning. You you keep the win. If you win with nonsense and and smoke and mirrors, it's not going to last. So the question is, what kind of win do you want? One that you're going to have to defend and lose the day after or something that actually begins to you know, make its way into uh, our, our consciousness, into our culture and our society. It's time we have to get, you know, we have to get back to that. Truth has to matter for sure. But, uh, you know, kind of, I don't want to, I don't want to live in a society where this kind of other way is, is, you know, carries the day. That's, that's kind of craziness. Well, and, and let's let's jump to that 35-minute moment and then we'll right, go back because there's a lot to track through here. But And actually, I want to jump even to the end of the end because obviously um, – <laughs> Heaven? So, yeah, yes, let's get to heaven because <laughs> Drew starts talking about this, not just the, um, the importance of communications and, and leveraging – and leverage, I love the word, but leveraging a philanthropist's overall strategy – but at KFF, communication is everyone's job. Yeah, I wrote that I, one down I, too. I, I feel like I've heard somebody say that on a podcast. <laughs> I, wrote I can't that remember down. who it was. But it's everyone's Some job. Do. It's not something we hand off. It's not something that's sitting down at the end of the hall. To me, that's that that's what this where this whole fundamental rewrapping of what's happening with KFF and Drew's vision for it. It's all starting and coming from that sensibility. And and again, we've talked about this, you know, in the past about the folks in our field and the different things that bring them to this work. And what an interesting mix of backgrounds that um, Drew is drawing on, including <laughs> doing poli sci at MIT. Like, yeah. like at that, you're just like, okay, you had me a hello. Just <laughs> just keep talking. But so, so Mr. Brown, what do you, what do you make of this last five minutes of this, of this uh, interview where basically all of our heads exploded and you just laid it out exactly plainly the way everyone should be thinking about this? Now, by the way, for the record, I did poli sci at Monterey Peninsula College. <laughs> so I think that's the same. Yes. <laughs> Correct. I think we're equal. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> but no, he, yes, you're right. He, what he's saying is that he built a communications organization that yes. was was focused on on healthcare, but it was primarily, fundamentally, a communications organization, and that organizations that are working on specific areas have to fundamentally be communications organizations, right. and that way of thinking is not usual, and there are very very few foundations that I know of. Even advocacy organizations often don't describe themselves in that way. And and I think we can learn a lot from Drew about how you actually get stuff done by being a communications organization. Well, and this balance he's able to strike because, you know, and you did not set him up to say this. I know you didn't. But I did not. Yeah, you're right. He immediately says, said it anyway. I would say he cut you off even to say, you know, you need to make a huge investment in communications to be effective. You know that it's fundamental. It's a fundamental way to leverage the 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 work. And so, 
the piece about this that I just love is the balance then between we're going to work on policy analysis, polling research, journalism, but we are not going to take positions. And then, in fact, that even goes another step further because he talks about the ability to create um, editorial independence even within the context of the, of the organization. So there's an, such an interesting set of things going on here where from the moment you decide to make that decision, communications is going to be fundamental and we're going to communicate from the standpoint of um, we're not going to take positions. We're just going to mirror back what's so, what's true. But we're going to do that in a way that abide, abides by the standards of journalism so that we become a trusted voice. That is not falling off a log, right? That is not rolling out of bed in the morning and just saying, okay, I know how to do that. There's a ton of balance that goes into that. And um, to have a 30-year track record doing that the way that Drew's got it, it's just – it's really astounding to see all that he's created with that with that vision. Wouldn't you say? I mean it's just – it's it's really extraordinary what KFF does with all of this. Well, it's interesting because he corrected me in saying that he's not – they are not an advocacy organization. Right. Which I find very interesting. Every – let's just say that as a journalist, any journalist, they – they make choices about the things that they cover that mm -hmm. reveal some kind of approach to the issue that they are covering, right? And yeah. KFF certainly does that. They're covering healthcare in a certain way. But as he says, we we let what we believe the facts to be lead lead the the story. And right. they try they really it sounds to me and I actually I really do believe him. Sounds like they're going to play it down the middle and find out what the information is. Now, the kinds of stories they cover is based on some kind of perspective about what healthcare needs to be or how it should function in a democratic society or or whatever. But the idea that he, kind of he's willing to let the truth, what what whatever version you know the, his understanding of what he believes truth to be, to take him there, I think is it's. It's great. And, you know, some people would say it's crazy, but like we said earlier, kind of what society do you want to live in? The one that in which the best propaganda wins or right. the best, best information wins? Well, and how did they do that? So he brings us into that glimpse of the strategic underpinnings of how that works. And what does he talk about? We describe the experience. We're describing the experience that people are having as they go through um, the healthcare system, let's say. And I thought it was really interesting. And this is a little bit of just a nugget tucked into all of this when he describes, you know, when things become more tangible, it's less ideological. Like, like this, this partisan split mm -hmm. that shows up, that perfect partisan split that shows up around ACA when it gets more tangible, that, that sense of just, oh, knee jerk ideology starts running away. And, you know, when we think about how this conversation fits in with some of the things we've heard from ComNet, fits in with some of the things that we've heard from some of our other um, guests, there's a nugget in there that I feel like is so important for all of us as we think about doing all of this work. It's really true. Uh, the idea that it, I thought the, conver the discussion about Obamacare, what became known as Obamacare, was particularly instructive because mm -hmm. so much of people's understanding of something is framed from their perception of the messenger or is framed from some kind of perception of facts as they have been misunderstood. Mm -hmm. And when you talked about the the components of Obamacare, people were 
you know, they liked it. They wanted to be able to keep their doctor. They wanted to be able to get insurance, whether they had pre-existing conditions. And then when you framed it in terms of the Obama, then, of course, the popularity for it went down in certain places. And this is just a reminder as well, though, that truth is important, but it is also a question of how you communicate the truth. And this is where advocacy understanding advocacy is is pretty important. Now, mm-hmm. this is not something that KFF feels is within its purview, but sure. this is the sort of thing that people who are advocating for a certain approach to healthcare need to understand. And so I think that's where these two pieces come together. So there's two pieces that I want to make sure we get, that we touch on, even though we're going a little bit long. But so he also talks about, and man, I, I hear this stuff and it's just, it's so hard to just let it, you know, run by, and, and he's talking about the, the work KFF is doing to address it, but talking about the deficits in journalism, now we're sitting not so much at the national outlets, but they're sitting at the state and local yeah. level. And this notion that hundreds of counties in the South have no paper, um, and that, you know, state houses, the state house beat is kind of also going away. Um, now it sounds like KFF is doing its own work to open bureaus, which it sounds amazing and congratulations to them for taking that project on. Um, but you've seen every version of this, right? Cause you've, you've been in philanthropy trying to fund into this space. And then you've also been on the advising side, uh, you know, helping people navigate this change in the media landscape. But what do you take of that, that whole conversation about just the, you know, this continuing, repositioning and, and just almost emptying out of what what is journalism and where it's happening and how it's happening. It's interesting because on the one hand, journalism is now, you know, you and I, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> you stand on one leg, squint real good. What we're doing is a variation on journalism. It's a couple oh, of guys and a microphone and the free internet. It's and... over. It's all over. <laughs> <laughs> you know, bloggers are journalists. Someone's mm. standing on a street corner with their phone shooting a video of something mm-hmm. that once people see it, it changes their view about an, a particular issue. Think Eric Garner. Think, think all sorts of people who have opened our eyes through citizen journalism. So that is an exciting development. The flip side of it, of course, is that it is also incredibly important to do the kind of investigative work that takes a long time, that requires a lot of money. And as as Drew was saying, covering a statehouse where you're looking at the mundane, but hiding in the mundane is the valuable. And those kinds of folks are much harder to come by. So, you know, on the, we're in a kind of a, on the one hand, on the other hand situation. Yeah. But I, I firmly believe that if you're funding, if you're a funder and you care about an issue, you, you, you care about any kind of issue, you have to, you really kind of owe it to your, to your, the people whom you are, whose lives you're trying to improve to make sure that the, the, the facts get out, that the stuff gets covered in a fair, intelligent, thoughtful way. Because if not, then, you know, kind of people roll their own reality. And that's, like, that's not good enough. So here's the key change in the story then. Because Drew arrives 30 years ago with this idea of a new way to do this work. And the organization goes from foundation to endowed nonprofit. And that is such an interesting transition to think about. And then that's the framework from which they're thinking about their work going forward. 
and then you also asked him about, you know, this model and should others emulate it, which I left that entire reflection about, you know, how to think about that. And I'll have another thought about that in a moment. But what do you make of this transition that KFF made back in the day and this whole notion of endowed nonprofits working in this space in this way? I, I mean, it's funny. I'd never really thought of those two words going together before endowed nonprofit until I heard Drew say it so plainly. What do you think about that? Well, uh the Public Policy Institute of California is an uh, endowed nonprofit, and they have mm-hmm. the freedom to conduct the kind of research that they feel they should conduct. It gives – it most certainly provides a, a level of freedom that other organizations may not have. I love the idea. Of course, Drew dinged me again for saying that they were punching above their weight. Yeah, uh, one of the right. things – it's so much fun to interview him because he keeps <laughs> you on your toes. Oh, totally. Uh, <laughs> no, totally. Totally. So I, I totally agree that if you care about an issue, endow it, fill it with people who have high integrity, whom you trust and who you will trust with your issue and set them on their way. I think it's a really, really interesting model. And the fact that he has and he acknowledged that being able to gain the credibility in the marketplace for producing information that is valuable, fair, honest, truthful, well-considered did not happen overnight. And you, not everyone will be successful at this because, it, again, it takes a, a, a view, kind of a real kind of discipline to not proselytize, to not become advocates, but to really seek the truth. And he was able to do that. And I think there are other people out there who could do it too. And this is a model worth, really worth exploring. Well, in the the glimpse too he gave us of this of where that can go when he's talking about getting calls from policymakers and national media looking for sources, looking for ways to think about issues. And you know what he's saying, some of those the national outlet issues come to me. We'll stay up all night, you know, doing special analysis to hand off to other journalists, and we're not promoting ourselves in that work. I mean, this is the spade work. This is so crucial and um, that they're doing that work over there is so exciting to hear about. So so this is this is the quibble that I would have with uh, uh, Mr. Yeah. Altman. So so I'm going to say this to, by the way, one of the greatest voices of gravitas that I think we've ever had. Yes, here, right? I mean, just, gravitational. Man, I mean, because he's been there. He knows it. So this is in the spirit of no good deed goes unpunished. So I get it. Kaiser's doing polling work. It's doing its um, re, you know, research work, and it's doing its own journalism. It actually even has its own media shop, which you didn't talk about too much, yep. but they have a communications information pro. They've got their own podcast. They've had it. Drew's doing his own writing. He's got a column that he produces. So I thought his answer to others could emulate this model. It didn't go far enough because Drew, Mr. Altman, You've got to go find some of these young philanthropists, shake them by the arms and get them to do this. <laughs> this is this has got to become a clarion call. And here's the reason why. As much as you might say you can emulate this model, it's the learning. It's the felt experience. It's the I've been in this all day, every day for 30 years. That's so crucial. And yes, you can find the right people and you can get the right sensibility put together so you can do it. But I don't know what the endowment sitting at KFF is, but there's no question that there's another 10 of these that could be created on different issues. And when you when you look at the range of issues and the range of impact that KFF can have, why not have 10 of these out there? And, and, I, and I actually can't think of another person 
who would have the ability to maybe usher that along, except for someone like Drew. So, so Drew, who's already too busy and who's already staying up all night, all night doing other people's work, there's another project. That all right, there you go. Kurt, what do you telling, think? Telling people what to do again. <laughs> it's a beautiful fence. It's, it's a, a beautiful, beautiful fence. fence. It needs to be painted. Well, this. Oh my goodness. I mean, Drew Altman, president and chief executive offer at Kaiser Family Foundation. My goodness. Um, what a treat. I mean, is there anything else you want to uh, say here, Eric, besides a huge thank you to Drew for taking the time to talk with us? A huge thank you to Drew for taking the time to talk to us. And I, I really do hope that we hear back from people about what they think, because this has been this is a whole lot of fun. And it's always great to hear from the world what what they're learning, what they're taking away from these conversations. You and I can Absolutely. blab at each other forever, but I really am interested to to hear from others as well what, what lessons they're they're taking away from these really interesting conversations. No, and I will say just one little uh, last note then to Drew. Dear Drew, you are in fact a hero to us all. That's what happened <laughs> as a result of all of your work. So there you go. Thanks, everybody. Uh, we'll see you next time and let's hear it. See you next time. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show, and that definitely includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. Sarah Morgan, our tireless social and digital media maven. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Limita Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments, all for their generous support for this work. Oh, and check out Heinz's terrific podcast, We Can Be, hosted by Grant Oliphant at heinz.org slash podcast. Absolutely. And we certainly thank today's guest and, of course, all of you for listening. And thank you, Mr. Brown. Oh, no, no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. Till next time. <laughs> Let's hear it. <laughs>